If you would just take God's word into your hands now, we're going to get into our series again that we've entitled Elijah, A Man Like Us. And uh, we're a little quiet today in this, uh, in this uh, second service. We're down attendance-wise. But, so let's, while you're opening your Bible, let's hear a good, good morning uh, to everybody. Say good morning. All right, we're nice and awake. So we're in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 uh, through 29. And as you're turning there, I'm going to have you stand right up again as we're going to read from the text and then get right into our uh, message this morning. And uh, just so you're aware, we'll be celebrating at the end of uh, the message uh, a time of, of communion. And so uh, if you uh, are normally with us, we usually by this time of our service have had a time of communion, but we're going to work it in through the message this morning and uh, give an extended time for exa- some examination after we're done. So let's go ahead and uh, look to our text. First Kings 21 says, Sometime later there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard from Naboth the Jezreelite. So then Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Verse 11 tells us, So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did, just as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast, seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you, for he is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down and meet Ahab the king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, 
So you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by his wife Jezebel. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you not noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Let's pray. Lord, these are hard words to read. These are passages of Scripture that don't find themselves in the children's picture Bible. But Lord, these are your words. And so, Lord, we want to hear them. Lord, I pray today that we would not just hear them, but we would heed them this morning. That we would recognize that there is an end to your patience and that we should not try it. Lord, I pray that we would not be like Ahab that we would serve you as Naboth did. Lord, that we would have his kind of faith. Lord, I pray that we would be like that of Elijah who spoke words of conviction that came from you. Lord, I pray that we would be quick to get our accounts settled with you and not to find ourselves, as the text says, being sold into evil as Ahab did, but that we would be found righteous doing the work of our Father in heaven. So, Lord, we want to heed these words. We want to see this example and recognize that were it not for your grace, we too might fall. And so, Lord, we need that grace this morning, both the people and the preacher alike. So we ask for it this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My message this morning is entitled, Enough is Enough. Now, I don't know about you, but I have said that phrase numerous times. As my patience has uh, worn down in the workplace, as it has taken place in my family life, as it takes place even on the expressway where my temper begins to flare, I will say something to the effect that my patience has run out. I'm tired of living and tired of watching what is before me, and I've had enough. Now, I never would have thought when I penned these words down at the first part of this week that I'd be saying that Saturday night into Sunday morning. Now, i got to be honest with you. Um, This week, my my wife is traveling. uh, She's visiting a friend in Los Angeles and is going to be gone for uh, almost seven days. This is a time where you go, aw. Okay, and I'm all alone with three boys. But one thing I was looking forward to was having the bed all to myself. Some of you can recognize that and understand that. And about two in the morning, 
I woke up with this eerie sense that someone was looking at me. And it was my middle son, and he says, Dad, can I sleep in the bed with you? And I said, that's ah, okay, no problem. He's a little guy, he won't take up much of the bed, no problem. Then about 45 minutes later, it's the oldest son. Dad, can I come and lay in the bed with you? Uh, all right, all right. And so we put him in the bed. About three in the morning now, Luke comes into the room. Daddy, can I come and lay in the bed with you? Yeah, come on in. And for about 25 minutes, I'm laying there, and these guys, I don't know how they sleep, okay? I pity their wives one day. I, I'm, I'm not even asleep, and I'm looking at them. They're all over the place, legs and arms all over, and they're snoring away. How they could even be comfortable, I don't know. But I said, enough is enough. I'm going to go sleep in another bed. So I went and slept in a kid's twin bed, and now my back hurts so bad, but enough was enough. I mean, they had stolen my bed. No doubt, parents, you've been there where you have said enough is enough, where you've seen your children go far as, as they think they can go, and you finally just say, when you're finally done dealing with it, enough. I wonder if that was what that young Australian boy was dealing with. You've probably heard about this. There's a YouTube video of a young boy in Australia who had been bullied over and over again. And a classmate on their phone at, during a passing period at school had filmed one of the latest altercations that had taken place. And this young boy uh, who was just minding his own business is up against the wall, and you can see from the video the kids are pointing and punching. In fact, one of the bullies punches him right in the face, and he stands there. And then all of a sudden, as one kid is pointing his finger at him, it's as if the boy says without ever verbalizing a word, enough is enough. And as if he was a part of WWF, that kid takes the bully, lifts him up into the air, and throws him down to the ground. And then the other bullies just ran. They were done. They're like, man, that's the last time we're going to mess with him. I wonder if he was saying enough is enough. I'm tired of being beat up. I'm tired of getting hit. I'm tired of being afraid. So I'm finally going to defend myself and we'll deal with it. We're seeing this sentiment all across the world. Nation after nation in upheaval saying to their leaders, to those that they have felt that they have been under tyrannical rule, saying to their leaders and to the world, we've had enough. Enough is enough when it comes to not being led well and high taxation and brutal uh, dictatorships. We're done with this. And so we've seen it. You've probably said that in the shopping aisles. You've probably said it in your workplace. It's amazing how many times we lose our patience. But that's not what I want to talk about today. It's easy to talk about how we lose our patience. But the question I want to address today is what happens when God does what happens when God says, enough is enough? Now, I know some of us right away will say, wait a minute. God doesn't do that. God is a patient God. He is a loving God. God is slow to anger, not willing any to perish, but all to come to a saving knowledge of his son, Jesus Christ. But I will tell you, while we proclaim that, and while we teach our children that, that for, so, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life, that same love that is infinite in one way must be balanced by the idea of God's judgment and his wrath the other way. 
You see, we can't have just a God of love because while God is love, we also recognize that he is perfectly balanced in all of his attributes. And so as far as God goes on the love side, so he goes in the way of judgment and wrath. Our text today is one of those times where God loses his patience. It runs out. He's done. And before we shun this passage and say, you know what, Uh, that's for wicked people like Ahab and Jezebel, I want us to recognize that it happens more often than we would ever think, and it happens to a whole group of people. So I want us to get into our outline, and the first point I want to bring has nothing to do with our text per se, but is a theological thing that we must understand, and that is simply this. The day of God's patience has an end. The days of God's patience have an end. What that means is while God is a God of patience and long-suffering, a God who does not reveal his wrath very often, there is a time that he does display it. And at a time of his choosing, he has said to his creation over and over again, enough is enough. Now, I don't have time to deal with all of these, but I want to show you an overview of Scripture where we see this take place. First of all, write these down, and I want you to write the passages next to them, and that's your assignment this week to take a look at them. First of all, we see that God said enough is enough to celestial beings. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us what took place before the foundations of the world. Now, we know the story uh, of Lucifer, who was an angel, the most uh, high um, uh, angel of all of the angels in heaven. And Lucifer gets this idea that he's better than God, that he could take God in a battle. And it's not just Lucifer that thinks that, but a third of the angels in heaven say, yeah, if it's God versus Lucifer, we think that Lucifer could win. God says at that moment, in foundations past, he says, enough is enough. I will not deal with insubordination in the heavenly realms. I will not deal with a coup attempt for my glory and my throne. And God says in 2 Peter chapter 2 that he has taken those that now are demons and he has confined them to gloomy dungeons and chains awaiting the day of judgment. God said to angels, enough is enough. I'm not going to deal with that garbage anymore. But notice, in the first part of the historical story of humanity, we see that he says it to civilizations. In Genesis 6, 5 through 7, we see that God says enough is enough to our world. We know the story. Genesis 6 says that God becomes grieved that he had made man because every inclination of man was to do evil. And so God says, I'm grieved that I made him, and so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wipe the world clean. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm tired of it. Every time I look down at you humans, all you're thinking about is ways to do evil and exercise those evil ways in your life. So I'm getting rid of all of you. But then God's grace admits his wrath is that he finds favor, that Noah finds favor in his eyes. And Noah and his family are then put onto an ark. And they are the ones that will rebuild and repopulate the earth after the great flood. God says it to civilization. Notice God says it to a country. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 16. 2 Chronicles 
36, 11 through 16. God says to the nation of Israel, I'm bringing the heat. I'm tired of you seeing, you're, you're my people and you're going the wrong way. You're, you're pursuing the wrong gods and the wrong teaching. You're sinful in every way. And he says, I'm going to bring so much calamity on you that there will be no remedy. Enough is enough. I'm tired of dealing with you guys in this way. And so I'm going to bring so much tribulation, you won't know what hits you. God says it to a country. Notice God says it to a city. 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verse 6, gives us a synopsis of an Old Testament passage in the book of Genesis where God speaks against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because of their pervasiveness in sin, their perversion, and the pursuit to follow other gods instead of God, Jehovah God, the only God, God says, I'm going to destroy him. Now, again, there's grace because he allows his uh, chosen instrument of Abraham to go into the city to seek any who would stand up for God and therefore spare the city. But the scripture says that no one is to be found and God destroys the city, that it would be wiped off the face of any map of the earth. You say, well, that's Old Testament, Tim. Of course God was a judgment kind of God. Let's move to the New Testament Notice in Acts 12, 21 through 23, we see that he says enough is enough to a corrupt king. Acts 12, 21 through 23. It says in Acts 12 that on a day, and this is verified by a secular historian, Josephus, who writes in his antiquities, I won't even go to the scriptures, the scriptures are there in Acts 12, but Josephus says it was a sunny day in Jerusalem when King Herod came out onto his balcony. He was in full regalia, Josephus says, and he says with his regalia came all kinds of ornate jewelry all over his body, whether on his hands, on his crown, or his robe. He was full of sparkling jewelry. And so when the sun hit him, all measure of brilliance shined off him. And the people in one voice said, this is not the man, this is not the words of a man, but of God. And man, he looks like it. And he says, Josephus says, that instead of responding to quiet the people down, he said, Herod stood embracing the cheers of the crowd. And then he said he fell ill right then and there. The scripture says that the spirit of the Lord was sent there and crippled him and allowed, it says, to slay him that his body would be eaten by worms. Josephus says that he went into such intestinal distress that his insides began to eat their way out. God said, you're going to take my place Enough is enough. I'll deal with it. You say, Tim, all of these are unbelievers. Of course God would deal that way with unbelievers. Let's move again. He does it with Christians. Acts 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira. People that were following the Lord, servants with the disciples. They were doing a lot of great things, a part of that great body of believers in the New Testament church. And what happens? They sell a piece of property and they say they're going to give the proceeds to the church. And then Ananias by himself lies about it. And the Bible says the spirit slays him. He dies. Sapphira comes later and is asked the same question. And she lies about it. And she is knocked dead. Christians 
where God says enough is enough. I could go on. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 through 32, tells us that people were playing games with the Lord's Supper. That the Corinthian church, when they would come, they would come drunk. It would turn into all manner of of celebrations, if you will, uh, at Mardi Gras. All kinds of debauchery would take place in a church service around the table. And Paul comes in and he says, some of you, because of this kind of living, some of you are sick. And it's from the judgment of God. And then he goes on, he says, some of you, as a result of this, have fallen asleep. You've died. And it isn't just because you died because you were old or anything. It was because they were taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. Christians are told enough is enough. Now we get to our text and we see a couple where God says enough is enough. I want you to notice a couple of things before we get into our text this morning. First of all, write, write these down. The judgment of God happens to both Christians and non-Christians. Now let me be clear. I want to make this abundantly clear. That when the judgment comes upon a believer, it will not mean a loss of salvation, but it will mean possibly the loss of an earthly life, and it may mean the loss of eternal rewards. So it can happen to both believers and non-believers. Second, The judgment of God, when God says enough is enough, can sometimes happen with warning and other times with no warning at all. Noah's uh, compatriots had 120 years, and the preaching of Noah and and the sign of the ark being built to turn from their wicked ways. Sodom had Abraham going into the city and saying, God is going to destroy it. But Ananias and Sapphira didn't. King Agrippa didn't. The Christians in 1 Corinthians 11 didn't. Sometimes God warns. Other times they come with no warning at all. Number three here. God chooses the time, the date, and location of when he exercises judgment. You don't get to pick it. Ahab was not thinking about the judgment of God in 1 Kings 21, and all of a sudden it comes. God picked the time, the location, and the date. Notice what Proverbs 29.1 tells us. A man who stiffens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. Listen to that last part. The man who stiffens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. God picks the time and the date and the location. Finally, you need to understand this, that God always gets the final word. Galatians tells us that God cannot be mocked. A man and a woman reap what they sow. We need to understand that if we're living for sin and nobody's seeing it, nobody's watching what we're doing on the internet, nobody watching what we're doing behind closed doors, nobody knows about that wrong relationship or, or that stealing at work or, or, or those hurtful words that are being said. And nobody may see it and you may say, I'm getting away with it, I'm getting away with murder. Ahab must have thought, I got away with murder. And God says, if you think that I don't know everything that's going on in my world, you've got another thing coming. God says, I know what's going on. And I can tell you, brothers and sisters, and it is a dreadful thought, 
But God knows not only the good things that your preacher does, but he knows everything that's going on. When I'm not wearing the nice suit, when I don't think anybody else is around, God knows that as well. He doesn't just know it about me, my friends. He knows it about everyone. And God says, I won't be mocked. You will reap what you sow. That's the theology of the judgment of Almighty God. We need to understand this. If I was to stop right here, we'd all be done. But let me pose this. How do we prevent such a demise? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into the hands? Because the scripture says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews says. I don't want to do it. And so I want to know, how do I keep from aggravating and trying the patience of my God in heaven? That's where we turn to Scripture. Now let's go to 1 Kings 21 with that preface in mind, and let's look at our text. Because we're going to see two examples. And the first of the two examples is one that is a life directed by godly principles. We see in the life of Naboth a life directed by godly principles. Let's look at our text. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard for use as a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it's worth. Let's stop there. The first thing I want you to see is that this life that is guided by or directed by godly principles shows itself in what I want to call a reasonable deal. Write that in your outlines. There's a reasonable deal. Ahab comes, and he comes to Naboth, and he says, Naboth, I want to purchase a piece of your property. It's real close to my palace. I want to use it as a vegetable garden, and, uh, and I'd like to buy it. That seems pretty reasonable. In fact, that, that's quite honorable. A king to do that? That That's not a bad thing. Ahab is totally within his right as a king to do it. And I would commend Ahab because Ezekiel tells us that a king cannot go and demand something, but that he, just like anyone else, if he wants to purchase a piece of land, can't require it in an unnecessary way, but must pay for it. So Ahab is doing what a good king should do, and that is go to Naboth. Hey, I want to purchase your land. Here is what I'm going to pay for it. This is how I want the deal to be done. Seems pretty reasonable to me. From um, from, uh, Naboth's point of view, this seems like a great opportunity. Here is the king, and he comes to Naboth, and he says, I want to buy your land. Think about if uh, the Obamas came to your house and said, hey, we'd like to purchase uh, your house. We want to make it our, our house in between Washington and Chicago, just a place to stop and freshen up before we get back to Hyde Park. What a great comment that would be. Hey, the president wants uh, to buy my house. Him and the first lady are going to purchase my house. What a nice house I must have that the president of all people, he could have any house that he wants, and he wants my house. I'm sure Naboth saw that as just a wonderful thing. And then to boot, Naboth would be able to say that the king loved my house so much that he gave me two options. I could have a better piece of land or... He would pay whatever price I asked. Now he says what it's worth literally in the Hebrew is what Ahab says to Naboth is, Naboth, name your price. 
man, what a deal. I get to go have the king purchase land, and I get to determine what the price is going to be. And he says he's going to pay it. So I've got the king buying my property. I'm going to get out like a, with a steal of a, of, a, of a price. What an opportunity. This is a reasonable deal. But notice what Naboth says. With all of that going well, I mean, my goodness, talk about Christmas Day coming early for Naboth. And notice what he says. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. We see amidst this reasonable deal, there is a righteous decision that is made. Naboth says no. Not because, per se, it was his decision based on his own thinking, but it's based on the decrees of God. Now, there's a couple things I want us to notice about Naboth in regards to his response. First of all, Naboth sought the wisdom of the Lord even when something sounded really good. That is impressive. Because you know what happens when I find a good deal? When I find a steal? I've never asked God's thoughts on it. Because I figure that God is shining the the blue light, no pun intended with Kmart, the blue light to that special, that that must be, since I got such a great deal on it, then it must be in the cards that I have that. Right? If if I find something that is that good of a deal, that that great for me, then, then it must be the right thing. If someone came to my house and said, Tim, we will give you, I don't know anymore what my house is worth, probably nothing anymore, but let's say they say, we're going to give you a half a million dollars for your home. That's a great deal. I didn't pay anything close to that. And I would think right away, well, God has shined his light upon me, and he has given me the opportunity to really increase my bottom line now by doing this. Naboth doesn't do that. Naboth understands what we as people need to understand, and that is this simply. Whether it's a good deal or a bad, whether it's in good times or bad, we always are called to seek the wisdom of God. And that's what he does. He doesn't say, well, based on the circumstance, God must be in it. He wants to know God's plan in it, God's thoughts in it, not just his own. Second, Naboth, I see, is a man who knew the scriptures. He says, the Lord forbids me to give up my inheritance. Where would he get a notion like that? Write this passage down, Numbers 36, 7. Naboth knew the word of the Lord that said, you cannot give up your inheritance, even if it is to a fellow Israelite. And the reason why is that every man must have an inheritance to give to the rest of his family after he dies. It was, if you will, the welfare system of Israel. A father takes care of himself, lives a good long life, and then gives what he has to his children, and it continues to go. And so if the man gives away that inheritance, he has nothing left to give to his children. And so Naboth remembers the word of the Lord. Now, understand this. Naboth probably didn't have a Bible with him. This is where I'm always blown away. Naboth, if he was a, if he was a devout Jewish man, would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized. And he would have run through and said, yeah, that's a good deal. Yeah, I could do that. Yeah, I could. Oh, oh, no. It says in the Torah that I can't do it. He knew the word. 
Finally, not only did he know the scriptures, this is most important, he obeyed them no matter the cost. He could have gotten money. He could have gotten a better piece of land. He could have gotten the, um, all the fanfare of hanging out with the king and making this deal with the king. He gave up all of that to follow God's words. Oh, how we need Naboth's in our church. Oh, how I need a lot of Naboth in my life. Because many times I think about how to advance myself, and that's what God must want. And you know what happens, and we're going to see this later on? Naboth obeys, and you know what he gets as a result of it? A death sentence. But God is glorified. And some of us are more worried about our comfort and our advancement instead of following God's word, no matter what it may cost. Naboth, what a guy. There's no books named after him. There's not much beyond this spoken about it, but I can tell you, one day I want to stand and talk with Naboth in glory because that's a guy where the rubber met the road for him. Now let's move on. So we got this guy driven by godly, I'm sorry, directed by godly passions. And then we've got good old Ahab. And in him we see a life driven by ungodly passions. Notice what the text says. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife comes in, asks, why are you so sullen? Why won't you go eat? Because Naboth, and he says it again, won't sell his vineyard to me. Understand this. Naboth heads in one direction towards godliness. Ahab heads in the other direction towards ungodliness. And he doesn't get the answer he wants. And notice what happens. He becomes restless. The text says he becomes sullen and angry. He becomes restless. Now, understand this was a pattern. This was a pattern in 1 Kings 20, the, the passage before, verse 43 says, Sullen and angry, the king of Israel, Ahab, went to his palace in Samaria. This is something he does over and over again. When he doesn't get his way, he becomes upset. Some of you are like that. Some of you, the second you don't get your way, you become upset. You become angry. My youngest son is just like this. Every time we play a game and Luke doesn't win, he quits. And I got to tell him, stop that. Stop being a sore loser. Okay, Dad, I won't do it this time. We'll play the game again. He loses and he runs off all mad just like he did before. Some of us have the propensity to do that. Ahab does, sullen and angry. He's upset. It's a pattern. Next, he becomes so preoccupied with this stupid piece of land that he would refuse to eat. He's so worked up. Some of you are so restless about something you want, you're angry that you can't have it, and you're so preoccupied it's the only thing you can think about. That's all you can think about. I was in the grocery store a couple days ago, and I was behind a family and they had a teenage son. And the son I recognized very quickly uh, was driving age. And all I could hear about him saying was, 
I want a car, I want a car. And it's, it had just dawned on me that what had happened is they had just come from a dealership looking at a car, and mom and dad had said no. And you know what the son was saying? There's no other car like that in all of the world. I'm like, I remember those days. I remember my first words at a dealership with my dad looking for our first cars. I gotta have it. And the car dealer said, I love you. And my dad said, goodbye. We begin so focused on what we want, whether it's a job promotion, whether it's um, a relationship, that we become restless. We can't think about anything else but that one thing. And so we become preoccupied with it. We become angry and upset when we can't have it. And notice what goes on. He becomes pathetic. What a pathetic picture we are given. Notice what he does. Jezebel says, I'm sorry, Jezebel asks, why are you so sullen? Verse 5, why won't you eat? I'll give you some dramatization. You got Michael Jackson last week. I'll give you a little drama this week. Ahab responds, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I said I would give him another vineyard in his place. But you know what he said, Jezebel? He said, I will not give you my vineyard. Are you kidding me? Walter Kaiser, a famous commentator, says this. He says, Ahab's response is reminiscent of a toddler who throws a tantrum when he doesn't get his way. If you want to understand what Ahab's looking like, just come with me sometime with my three boys to the grocery store And when we're walking through the checkout aisle and all that candy and all that's there and and their little beady hands, they start grabbing at those things and we say no, you want to know how Ahab responds? They're usually on the floor. Amanda's running to the car in embarrassment and I'm left there standing with this tantrum. This is Ahab. And quite frankly, and you may be a bit offended, this is some of you. I don't get what I want, and so I'm going to make an absolute fool of myself until I get it. So notice Jezebel, the good wife, listen to what she says, I'm being facetious by saying good. Jezebel, his wife, says, is this how you act as king over Israel? My goodness, you're the commander-in-chief, and you're whining over a vegetable garden. What a, what a joke. My goodness, what a, come on. So notice what happens, because Ahab won't do it. He's too wimpy to do it. He wants it, so he gets his wife to do it. She says, cheer up. Get up and eat. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Understand this. When you become restless, two things will take place, one or the other. Number one, you will get rid of that restlessness, and you'll say, I'm done dealing with it. I'm going to let it go. Or that restlessness will continue to work its way into you. And what it will allow is ruthlessness to come out. Write that in your outlines. You will become ruthless. First, uh, James chapter 4 verse 1 tells us about this ruthlessness that comes out in us. Let me just read it for you. James 4 uh, verse 1 uh, in the first couple of verses says this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires, that battle within you? Isn't that restlessness? You have these desires and you don't know what to do with them and they're eating you up inside. Listen to what he says. You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet but you cannot have 
what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You start seeing someone else has what you want, and you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. Now, notice what this ruthlessness does. It brings about unthinkable scheming. How is Jezebel going to get this vegetable garden? Remember, what's at stake is a vegetable garden. Everybody say that with me, a vegetable garden. How many people like to garden here? How many are willing to kill for that joy of gardening? But I'll tell you what, you become restless enough, and you might. For a vegetable garden, notice what happens. Verses 7 through 10, I don't have time to go through all of this, but Jezebel says this is what we're going to do. She writes letters in, in the name of the king. She's not supposed to do that. Here's a woman, a wicked woman, worshiper of Baal, and she says, we'll declare a fast for the Lord. I think this is where God really gets ticked off. You're playing games with me, sister, and I ain't dancing with you. I ain't going to do this. She declares a fast, which is just a, a joke. She says, okay, now bring Naboth in and put him in a prominent space during this fast. At the end of the fast, have a celebration and put them... Two men, it says two worthless men in some translations, two scoundrels on each side of him, pay him some money and have them falsely accuse Naboth of uh, speaking blasphemy towards God and country. And that's exactly what they do. I want you to remember all of this is for a vegetable garden. A vegetable garden. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted something in my life where I have schemed in my heart. And I'm not a schemer, but I have schemed my way to get it. You know what used to do me in? Not vegetables, baseball cards. As a little kid, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I stole cards, I manipulated my friends to get the cards that I wanted, And that didn't come out until we watched a movie, The Boys and I, about a baseball card and a whole story surrounding a baseball card. And my my son says, why don't you have baseball cards? And this was one of those days that I I was excited to to bring out the cards. My kids are just now getting old enough to even recognize any of that stuff. And I got tons of cards. And you know what God brought to mind this week? You manipulated your way to get that card. Do you remember you, you... You argued with a friend to get that card. A baseball card. Ahab, it was vegetables. Badal, it was a stupid baseball card that came with a little stick of gum. What is it for you that you're willing to come up with all kinds of schemes to get that person that you're fighting for a promotion with? What can I do? How can I make sure that that, our boss sees that they're not as good as they really are? What can I do with that friend that's taken a friend away from me? How can I scheme? How can I make sure that she becomes the hated individual in the school? Some of you are scheming when it comes to your sin and pursuit of it. Finding ways to be hidden in your sin so that nobody can see it. So I'll go out at this time and I'll do this at that time and and I'll make sure that when I'm done on the computer I'll take care of this and erase that and all this scheming, all of this just to get stupid vegetables in our lives. And this is where God says enough is enough. Now notice it doesn't stop there because we're amazed when we lose control of our passions what we're willing 
to give up. And now notice what happens. There's unnecessary suffering. Verses 11 through 16. Everything happens. I'll just be very frank with you. Everything happens just as it will. They place Naboth at the table. Two scoundrels come in. They sit him down. Yeah, Naboth, I heard him the other day, and he cursed God, and he cursed his country, and we should stone him. And they say, well, no, we got to have another guy say it. And the other guy stands up. I heard Naboth say that too. All the while, Naboth didn't say a thing. And what happens? They say they stoned Naboth. Naboth dies. He dies. Why? Why does he die? All for what? Vegetables. A man dies. 2 Kings 9, 26 says not only does Naboth die, but his entire family dies. His sons and their families. God says that he hears in 2 Kings 9 the, uh, the voices of Naboth's blood that was shed. In that valley, all because of a stupid garden. Because one man is unwilling to control his unbridled passion. I want you to understand something. I want you to look up here for a moment. When we make, let me rephrase that. When you and I make, let me rephrase that again knowing that I'm a sinner, recognizing that when I say you, that I'm lumping myself in there, I want to make this abundantly clear. When you sin, it doesn't just affect you. It doesn't just affect me. But when we make a decision and we sin, I want you to understand the best way to illustrate it is to take a rock and throw it into water. What happens? Help me out. A ripple effect. It ripples. The main hit is the sin into our world, and there's a ripple effect. And now tell me, does when you throw the rock into the water, does the ripple effect just go boop and that's it? Or does it keep going and going and going? I want you to recognize this morning, if you've never thought about this before, that our sin has massive implications. All for a vegetable garden. His wife goes, declares a fast, lies before God and all the people. She gets two scoundrels involved in the situation and they, com- they uh, condemn a totally innocent man of a crime he did not commit and a bunch of people die all because of a desire for a vegetable garden. Let me tell you something. We've seen it in other passages of Scripture. David, for a night of lust and passion, loses his kingdom, no longer is a man who could say he's a man after God's own heart, loses the child that is conceived in that relationship, his children, his family becomes completely messed up to the point that his one son rapes his other daughter. A mess! And it's all because of one night of passion. Because David could not keep it toned down. He could not just walk away on that rooftop. His life became miserable. I want to show a video. Just a couple minutes long. I know we're getting to the end. My message isn't much left and we're going to go to a time of communion. But I want to show a video. 
And as they're getting it ready, I want you to recognize what you're going to see is a video. It's a music video, and bear with it. Listen to the words. It is a secular song. But it's a secular song about an individual who is singing the song about a decision that he makes to pursue his passions and the ripple effect that takes place. You'll be introduced to two people. The one who has made a wrong decision and then a girl and her family that pay the unnecessary consequences of suffering. Let's watch. I try to see but I'm blinded by the white light I can't remember how, I can't remember why I'm lying here tonight And I can't stand the pain And I can't make it go Try to make a sound, but no one hears me. I'm slipping off the edge, I'm hanging by a thread. I want to start this over again. So I try to hold on to a time when nothing mattered and I can't. Watching this, I want you to remember a guy that makes a decision to not bridle his passion and what consequences come as a result of one dumb decision of sin. And watch what takes place and the needless suffering that takes. suffering. 
The guy sings, how could this happen to me? Agonizing over the decision he made. Some of you today are periously, if that's the word, close to giving up all that you have because of a sin. And I hope this is a warning. Some of you dads are playing with things that you shouldn't be. You're going to lose your family. Some of you moms are allowing some things in your life. You might lose your children as a result. We know that even if God doesn't do those things, that God is grieved. So what do we do? Let me just quickly go through this fourth point. We need to understand, and this is important, the decisions we make will determine the path that we take. A decision needed to be made. And Ahab makes the wrong decision. Our young man on the video makes the wrong decision. And when we make wrong decisions, we run the risk, first of all, of seeing God's retribution. God speaks. And God calls in verse 17, Elijah. And he says, I want you to go meet Ahab of Israel. I want you to go down and say to him that you have murdered a man and you've seized his property. And God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to deal with it. Notice what he says. I'm bringing the pain. But before God can bring the pain, notice Ahab's remorse. So we see God's retribution. We see Ahab's remorse. Notice in verse 27 and 28. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? He's humbled himself, therefore I will not bring this disaster in his day. The reason why I bring remorse is one commentator said that this isn't truly repentance. I would have used that word if I wanted to. But the commentator says this is a kind of you win God. Ahab saying, uncle, I give up. And it only delays the inevitable. I want you to write these passages down, and I want you to look at these. 1 Kings 22 tells us, in 1 Kings 22, verses 34 through 38, the next chapter, some time had passed, and Ahab was in battle. And he disguises himself in battle so that he would not be known as the king of Israel. And it says, after a skirmish takes place, there's quiet on the battlefront. And then the scripture says in 1 Kings 22, verse 34, but someone drew his bow at random. Say the word random with me. At random. You think? So some guy says, yeah, I'll just shoot my one last arrow. And the text says that it strikes Ahab in between where the two pieces of armor meet. Random and Ahab's dead. He slumps over in his chariots, in his chariot, and he bleeds out. The text says later that they take it to the pool to wash out the chariot, and guess who's there to lick up the blood? The dogs, just by random. 2 Kings 9, write this passage down. 2 Kings 9, verses 30 through 37, speaks of Jezebel. Jezebel's yelling out the window to a king, doing it in a wrong way, screaming, thinking she's greater than everybody else. And the king says, I'm done with you, Jezebel. And he has one of his men throw the queen out the window. While she's falling out the window, she hits the wall 
and her blood splatters everywhere. I don't mean to be gross. She hits the ground, and before the guys can get to her, the text says that the dogs come and devour her body. There's only a couple parts of her left that you wouldn't have even known it was Jezebel. Just as Elijah had said. What about Ahab's descendants? 2 Kings chapter 9. Just beyond, or just, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 17. Let me just read the final words of the Ahab Jezebel story. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them all according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. God said, enough is enough. Now, brothers and sisters, we come to communion today. What a warning. And you say, Tim, communion's all about grace and mercy and forgiveness. Yes, it is. But it is only for those who are willing to humble themselves and say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Write these two last points down. You want to experience grace and forgiveness? Then it means reflect, and it means return. We're not going to spend a lot of time during this communion talking about the night that Jesus was betrayed. We're not going to talk about as much of what the blood or the, the cup symbolizes or the bread symbolizes. But if you call yourself a Christian, then you're welcome to this table with a warning. You see, we're so quick to invite. We're so quick to have our children engage in this, and that's good. But understand, this is sacred ground. And God doesn't play games. And what God is saying to us is this. You're going to proclaim my death, burial, and resurrection by a ritual that you do in church? Then do it in your life. And so that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, after telling the people that some had, had gotten sick and some had died as a result of not taking this in a worthy way, he says a man ought to examine himself.